0: Welcome to Inside Vancouver Opera, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes to talk to the creators, performers, directors, musicians behind our main stage productions and beyond. Today we are honoring National Indigenous Peoples Day with a conversation with Canadian composer Ian Cuson. Ian is a composer of art, song, opera, and orchestral work, and he's of Métis, Georgian Bay, the Métis community, and French-Canadian descent. His work explores Canadian Indigenous experience, including the history of the Métis people, the hybridity of mixed racial identity, and the intersection of Western and Indigenous cultures. I had the pleasure of speaking with Ian while he was in residence at the Banff Centre, where he is co-artistic director of opera in the 21st century. Ian's talked often about fiddling around at the piano as a young boy, and I asked him how on earth he went from that to where he is now.
1: You know, I, I started out as a kid with with a family that was not immediately musical. Meaning, my 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 parents were not um, musicians. However, especially on my dad's side, I come from a very musical family. So, aunts and uncles and extended family members who who played music and uh, but also told stories. So, story was a really really big part of my upbringing, hearing stories. I often tell the story, you know, when I was in the second and third grade, I can't count the number of days that I played hooky from school, um, feigning illness so that my grandmother could pick me up to bring me to her house and she would feed me food and she would tell me stories. And it was far better than school. And so, um, so I, I was constantly ill Uh, and it was great but the the formal time of my training it was like a lot of kids around six or seven and I, I was put into music lessons and that just snowballed into all of the great theory lessons and history lessons and really learning the craft of music but the cool part was that I had some exceptional teachers who fed me a lot of music beyond just the traditional Western canon. So I was hearing everything from folk music, uh folk music of particular countries and, and um and really experimental contemporary classical music. To rhythm and blues and and jazz and just I had a smorgasbord of 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 food uh, of, of 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 music options. W- were there any artists that you were listening to that that you were
0: introduced to at the time that kind of you you've held on to? Or?
1: I was a huge fan of Jesse Norman and and I discovered Jesse yeah, Norman. Me too. <laughs> uh, I you know for a lifelong fan and um, I never got to meet her and I, I I'm so sad about that and yet I. I treasure her through the, the interviews that she gave, um, just such an eloquent speaker, but then through this incredible voice. And I think what I loved about Jessie Norman uh, as a kid was that it was a voice that could do a lot of things. It didn't seem classifiable, and she spoke at length about not wanting to be pigeonholed and really not fitting in, in the sort of prescribed categories, and that, that struck me quite early on as something very special. But, you know, her four last songs, her Zalame, um, and, you know, the plethora of recordings she left were really an enormous part of my opera and music education.
0: I want to know when you kind of transitioned from that fiddling around to realizing that, aha, this is something that's going to be who I am as a, as as a vocation. Or if you even think that right now, I'd love I'd love to hear where that transition occurred and what do you think contributed to it.
1: My my path has not really been a linear path, and I, I realize the more musicians and artists I talk to, there really doesn't seem to be a linear path through through the the music or performing arts vocations, and mine mine certainly follows that non traditional path. I dabbled i played i i played with sound as a kid but as i discovered these incredible singers and composers and works it really opened my imagination to i could do that as well i could tell stories through music and i i took that and ran with that um, in my teen years and wrote quite a bit of music but then I also took a, a path away from, from music for a number of years, although music was a part of the work that I did, even the, the professional work that I did. But really, I came back in earnest in my early 30s to composing and and really pursued it with the vocational intent of really doing this work as a, as a primary source of living, um, in, in addition to just enjoyment and expression, but, you know, the funny thing is you mentioned that I, I started out by playing in music. I've never, I've never stopped playing. And even, you know, yesterday I was sitting here in my studio in Banff and I was working on a, a piece and, and I was still playing with sound. I, I really don't think that I'll ever leave that frame of creation because it really has informed the way I make work and it really has worked for me.
0: When you say playing with sound, what what inspires you? And in, in, in any given moment, like what draws you in? Has there been something?
1: I'd love to hear if you could walk us through a moment in which you're inspired and then decide to take that step. Because I write so much vocal music and operatic music, it's all, it's almost always text. To me, text is is primary. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, is the music more important, say, in opera, or is text more important? To me, of course, they're they're completely married, and they're completely united, and they should be woven together in such a way that they're inseparable. But at least from the creation side of things, I always start with text, and it shapes everything from... Uh, from the sound world, uh, let's say a story is taking place under the water, that will inform the, co- the kind of approach to, to creating a sound world for that, that space or that moment. But right down to the, the, the line and even the word choice, um, that helps the inflection of the shape of a vocal line, for example. Um, it helps establish the, the length of a line or the pacing of a scene so really for me working with text is really the the bed the bedrock the framework for a musical work. And and so really important to me is relationships that I have with my librettists and the poets that I that I set. To me they are really writing the music for me and I'm just sort of joining along that journey of 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 creation with them.
0: I'm thinking of one of your pieces um where There's a Wall, You Use a Poem by Joy Kogawa. I wondered about the feelings of that particular creation, and I wonder if, if we can maybe play a little of, of that piece. The poem says, where there's a wall, there are words to whisper by loose brooks, wailing prayers to utter, birds to carry messages taped to their feet. I really you know, encourage listeners to, to go and, and read the work. It's fantastic. Where
2: There's a
3: Maybe a ladder, a door, a sentinel who sometimes sleeps. extracting tools, to backs of underground passageways. There are zeppelins, helicopters, rockets, bombs, battering rams, armies with trumpets, whose all at once blast shatters the foundations
0: It's Christina Zabo, and Rachel Kerr performing "Where There's a Wall" by Ian Cuson. Um, I'd love to know about the creation of that piece, and I think there's a message in there of hope. And I think I wonder—is that part of your core belief as an artist, and and is that what you want to communicate because of the text or through your work as well?
1: The 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 Joy Kagawa poem that you're referencing the where there's a wall and the the rest of that cycle of, of songs that were based on on poems of hers are really really hit me at a time um, I, I I came to those poems in about 2016 I'd known her work for years and wanted to set some of her texts but 2016 I was watching the television and the the rhetoric especially south of the border was very much about. Um, about fear, fear fear-mongering, the fear of outsiders, um, the the discussion of wall building as a means of keeping in and keeping out, keeping safe, keeping pure, keeping clean. All of this language was bandied about um, in in the media and, and through conversations that I was having with people. And these poems talk to all of those, all of those things. Of course, written in a very different time and a different context, but had complete application uh, to this work. And I think there is both the, the message of hope, and, and certainly that is very important to me, but there's also this sort of rebellious contrarian spirit that a lot of people are surprised. I I hold very dear to. Um, when you meet me, my it may not be on the fore of my personality, but it is really deeply rooted in me. And when someone talks about keeping a person out by a wall, my first thought is how do I transgress the wall? Uh, and, <laughs> and, and this poem just is a, is a litany of ways to get around the wall. And it opens where there's a wall, there's a way around, over, through, under. There are words that we can whisper, like you said, through a loose brick, um, wailing prayers to utter, birds to carry messages taped to their feet. There are, are poems to be written um, that we can. We can any wall that is 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 constructed either to keep us out or to keep us in can be uh, can be torn down, can be um, scaled, and even language and art can break that wall down. And so, I think this act of creating musical work around a poetic work is an act of rebellion and, and deconstructing of a wall.
0: I love that. I mean, of course, I think of the Brechtian quote in The Dark Times. What do we do? We sing about the dark times. And you, you, you've talked about this idea of a wall. And I think our art form is notorious for having walls built around it. It's, it's one that, that you know, for a newbie audience can seem entirely impenetrable and can seem extremely elite Um, I think you've done a lot of incredible work to try to smash that wall. And I think I'm thinking about your most recent premiere, Phantasma. And I want to talk about, about that in a moment. But I want to talk more about the idea of crashing through a wall in our art form. And I think there's so many ways that you do that just because of who you are. So I want you to talk about how you feel that influences you and where you came from and what it all kind of contributes. It's a long question, I know, but I think... I think it speaks a lot to the nature of what you do. And that's why I brought up
1: that beautiful song cycle. You know, um, the the art form itself is often, it, it often does feel impenetrable. And p- I think part of it is because it carries with it, at least contemporarily in the last, say, 100 years, and that's contemporary, if you believe it or not, in this art form. Um, it, it, this idea of, of privilege and access and wealth and um, and. You know, don't get me wrong. I love going, having a night out at the theater and getting dressed up and there can be a real, there's almost a ceremony around that. And again, it's this idea of you're entering this maybe hallowed space with a thousand or 4,000 people and you're experiencing this work. There's something almost ceremonial about that. And so the idea of putting on garb and, you know, preparing yourself to have this encounter and this collective experience is what is so beautiful. But unfortunately, with that can get um, attached things that really are ex- exclusionary of, of many people, especially people who don't have you know the the funding to be able to buy tickets or or um, or, or feel comfortable even in, in a space where people are rubbing shoulders and you know doing having chit chats about the art form. In, in some ways, it feels like the the opera that that has been such an important part of history is is exclusionary and for me it's about again it's a wall in front of me and I just want to break it down and for me you know there, there are my colleagues and I will have this conversation a lot about how we can transgress those barriers that are that are put up and that have existed for a long time and we all take a different path through how to do that and for me one of the ways is telling story. Uh, That stories that have not been told in in the theater, telling the stories differently, um, the sound world that I write and create musically will always be a point of, I think, access for people. It doesn't feel hyper hyper intelligent or hyper... sophisticated for sophistication purposes it hopefully will feel accessible or reachable or grabbable and there will be challenging moments but you will be able to follow a story and enter into the world of the characters and the the tensions that they have and the decisions that they have to make and my real hope is that you'll have an emotional engagement as you experience my operas um and that that emotional connection may be with a person who looks different from you or who has a different walk of life. And that's the great thing about theater and, of course, film and other performing arts, where we can, we, we can enter a different person's story and learn something new about ourselves, about the world we live in, expand the horizons of our thinking. Um, and so for me, it's about bringing stories that have not existed in these hallowed, you know, and I'm putting air quotes around that, spaces of the opera house, bringing new stories with new voices and new bodies on the stage who have not occupied those spaces as well. You've talked about coming from a storytelling tradition. What What is that? Tell us about that exactly. You know, human beings, I realize, we're so... Wired to make sense of of ourselves, of our world, of our environment, and one of the ways that we seem to universally do that is through telling stories, telling stories to our families, telling stories to our friends, um, and and I think that is the act that I feel has made a lot of sense in my life as a young person. Um, but then now as as i as I continue along in this profession and make a profession out of out of telling stories, it's really about making sense of the world we live in. And sometimes it's making sense about the things that feel impenetrable or feel impossible or feel too big emotionally for me to handle alone. That, that that there almost needs to be this collective exploration of sitting in, in a house together, in a, in a theater together, and experiencing that story with other human beings and then discovering something new about myself. Um, and so th- that's really, I, I think, the hallmark of my making, of my composing of the work that I do, is, is making sense of my own existence in humanity. And hopefully providing a space for other people to engage those questions for themselves and for their own community. I want to talk a little bit about, about your Métis background and how it informs your work. I come from a community, um, the Georgian Bay Métis community, which is uh, on the shores of Georgian Bay in Ontario. Um, it's a really interesting piece of land because it's a piece of land that a lot of people have lived on over over the millennia. Um, but in the late 18th 20s, a group of people came from further west that were a mixed community. So they were indigenous and often had like an indigenous mother and and a and a white father. Um, often they their families were involved in the fur trade, either with the Northwest Company, usually with the Northwest Company, and um, and this group of families had built community together. And had ties further west and had ties with other communities, but, but sort of collectivized. And of course, the piece of land that they lived on was ceded to the Americans, and so they had to ship off. And there's this great account of our families getting in canoes and traveling along the waterways and being given these plots of land in, um, in along the Georgian Bay. And so uh, Penetanguishene is the one of the main communities that, um, that had a lot of our families landing in. And um, the the experience of, of living in that community beside, you know, a lot of other French settlers who came and a, a strong Ojibwe um, population as well was an experience of living in some ways between cultures and uh, but also within a very rooted culture. Um, I think of my body as a place of... It's a kind of intersection of identities, right? You've got... Um, a lot of various identities, but one of the the, the two that kind of I, I think a lot about and, and I think a lot about in my own work is being indigenous, but having a very strong settler contingent. Um, when a lot of people meet me, they wouldn't know that I have any indigenous ancestry because of the way I, I present visually. Um, and yet this is a really important part of how I grew up and who I am and who my family is and, and the stories that I know and the connection to the land that I've been given through my grandfather and through um, past generations. And so I've I've felt, and often as a younger person, I felt like I lived between worlds. I wasn't either, you know, white enough, let's call it, or indigenous indigenous enough Um, And I I sort of lived in a place of lacking. And as I've gotten older, as I've I've, um, been able to articulate that more and think about that more, I've really tried to change my own thinking about that intersectional way of living as being actually a a place of real abundance, as a place of real also creative potential. Because not only do I get to share in these incredible strands of history and culture, I can, um, I am all of those things at once in one body and how they, how do they intersect? I don't really know at times. How do they, how do they show themselves in my, my music or in the work that I write? It's not always clear. Um, a funny thing I've been asked before, you know, what's the indigenous part of your music writing as, as though I could like extricate that part of my, <laughs> and, and you know, Early on, when I would get asked that question, I, I would probe a little bit further with the person asking, and they'd usually end up saying, well, like, so where are the drums? Or where is the kind of, um, you know, the the 151, one, if you have a musical sort of r- framework, this sort of, this is was the idea of what Indigenous sound was. And I think what I've been trying to do, and certainly I'm not the only one, there is a really robust community of uh, Indigenous classical musicians in Canada who are pushing hard against these these really old-fashioned and really out-of-date notions. And what's really cool is that the work of, of this community of, of artists that are working right across Turtle Island, we make work that sounds completely different one from the next. Um, some of us have more like this kind of hyper post-romantic inclination. Some of us have a really kind of intellectualized mid-20th century sound. Some of us have... You know, neoclassical sounds. Some of us incorporate like the big drum in the in the in the work. Um, some of us have mixed kind of um, uh, like a, a acoustic with electroacoustic sounds. We all sound completely different, and we're all indigenous artists. And I think we, as a collective, as a group of of artists, kind of thumb our nose at what indigenous sound is. We're saying it is all these things. Um, and it is even the stories that don't center an indigenous narrative. They're still indigenous because they come through our bodies and our lived experience and our humanity. And so it's messy. You know, we we can't really sort out the threads of who we are. But isn't that true of of all people? How could we sort the parts of, of our identities out? We can't. We're just an amalgam of those things. And it's a beautiful amalgam.
0: I love that. I love all of that. And I resonate deeply with that as a, you know, a child of, you know, an African American grandmother and a, you know, French Canadian grandfather. It's it's certainly you live in that intersection of tensions. And it is that bounty, I think, that brings the voices to bear that we have within us. And I just appreciate so much that you, that you do that. And I, I remember when I first met you, I, I looked down at your shoes and they were the most fabulous shoes I think I've ever seen. Um, but that, that that day you were working with a community of artists on a, on a on a piece of work called Them Wyatt with with Calgary Opera, which is you you were in process with that. What I was amazed by was just how every single person in that room, down to the person who was filming the day, was part of that collective story. And I want to talk a little bit about the democratization that you bring and I don't think it's just you but I think that you have in that you had in that room and how important it is I think to to just remove that hierarchy that we usually have when we're in an
1: opera creation place you know Yvette Nolan was a huge part of and is a huge part of that project as both librettist and director um, and she wears many hats in that in that piece. Um, as do we all. And I think her her description is, is really apt, which is the idea of we take the triangle that is often the hierarchical shape, right? Someone is at the top, and then there are many people underneath them, and we turn it on its side, and we sort of expand out the edges of it to make it a circle, a sort of horizontal circle, if you will. And in a circle, there is no top. There is no, um, there's no bottom. There's just everyone in 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 that space. And like you said, every person has equal voice, has equal importance. Every person has something to bring to whatever it is that that group is doing. In our case, it was writing an opera, and it was really an act of, and that project that continues is an act of really asking ourselves, how do we make things? Do we make things by having One single person create a story, write the words down, you know, send that by fax or email or however carrier pigeon to a composer who then writes all the music and then sends that off to singers in a company who then produces it, which is the, you know, the the old way of doing it. But we're really trying to say, here we have a room of people who have exceptional abilities and really just bring all kinds of human lived experience to the room could we not all shape the story? Could we not all contribute to the, the language and the words of the of the piece? Could we not all contribute to the sound world? And of course, in, in this room, it doesn't mean that every single person has equal, you know, time writing music or equal time writing text, but everyone has a voice and a say and, and a perspective. And those perspectives are heard and are listened to and are welcome. And you know what's amazing? It makes for such so much of a stronger piece you you mentioned that sometimes the person filming the day filming the room um, who would otherwise or in another space just um, dissolve into the background they actually have brought some of the most interesting ideas to this project and will have had that will have their thumbprint on the final version of this piece it is really truly a collective creation. Now you might ask, okay, that sounds great in a in a in a in a pipe dream. That's perfect, but in reality, how do you make decisions? How do you move things forward? The interesting thing is that it actually works itself out more easily than one might think. Um, yes, sometimes we make decisions. Yes, sometimes one person will make a decision, but it's always offered in the spirit of of an offer that is accepted and that can be discussed and we can move very quickly through decision-making. You'd think we'd get bogged down, but, um, it's incredible that sort of, uh, the yes and offers like, Oh yes, great idea. And how about this? You know, it really generates the spirit of openness and, and, and giving and creative flow that is exceptionally exciting I, I want more of those experiences, and I want to bring that practice on that project to bear on all of the projects that I create. And sure, in some of those projects, I might be the sole composer, but how can we bring that attitude of openness, of generosity, of, of um, kindness, of um, everyone having a voice to the whole room in any space that I'm in?
0: I love that you're talking about accountability. You're talking about collective responsibility. As, you know, part of the second largest opera company in Canada, I feel that we have a lot to learn from from the work that you that you do, not only on projects like Nem Wyatt, but also with with a circle of artists at the Canadian Opera Company. I'd love it if you could share A little bit about what that is and what that looks like at the Circle of Artists and and what your role is.
1: The Circle of Artists really formed in and around a production in 2017, which was a remounting of the historic Canadian opera Louis Riel. And at that time, a lot of great conversation was beginning. Some of that was led by Dylan Robinson, um, a professor who who was helping the company to sort of see and expand its, its view on some of that, the work itself and parts of the work um, that were problematic. And this led to the company really saying, we need uh, an advisory group, but a, a group of people who will come together and really that we can learn from and that we can share with. And so the group was formed and I joined it a couple of years later. And uh, it's it's a really, it's a dynamic group. And so just to give you a picture, we sit in a circle always And, you know, there are, there are indigenous artists that have, that touch the operatic art form from various perspectives, sometimes from, you know, a stage management perspective, sometimes from a singing perspective, a creation perspective, um, all all sort of gamuts of, of, of ways of connecting to opera. And we sit with the executives of the Canadian Opera Company, and we all have equal floor time. Um, We, we talk about a range of things in terms of priorities for the company and um and and we offer sort of sounding a sounding board for the company on certain issues and we're led of course and and gathered by uh, an elder who who really has the first word in the room and has the final word in the room and that that is an important part of of grounding our time and you know it's funny when you're with when you're with an elder in a room it feels like your grandma is there and and you know it, it almost it, it brings me back to being a child um, you know i 've of course lost my grandparents now, but having an elder in the room you you sit and listen and they they might talk for twenty minutes or thirty minutes of that two hour time we have together and that 's okay and it 's valuable and it it 's great i mean it, it 's a real beautiful thing, but even just having the elder speak reminds us to sort of pull away from the the ways that we always go about structuring meetings, even within an, a large opera company, and so we've been able to, to uh, help guide the company through thinking about um, land acknowledgments, what those mean, how they can be done meaningfully and, and effectively, engagement with the indigenous indigenous communities in and around Toronto, um, and then also thinking creatively about programming and 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 talking about the needing to prioritize. Um, you know, main stage and second stage programming that is led and run and focused and centered around um, indigenous story and indigenous creation and it's it's been an amazing space, I think, for the company. I think it's been a place for us to all realize that we have voices and we can shape this industry um, in, in ways that will lead it into a new century, a new, like I like to say, a new 400 years of creation, you know, 400-year-old art form. What are the next 400 years? Well, they are going to look different than the last 400, and it's going to be amazing, and we are going to make exceptional art. And I hope we will draw new audiences who say, what the heck is this art form? It's incredible. Um I see myself reflected there but I see other people reflected there that are informing me about who I am and giving me this emotional space to to engage with art and beauty and tragedy and horror and all of the wonderful bits that go into into opera and uh, and, and and so I I I'm excited to see more and more companies follow that lead and say how can we be um meaningfully engaging uh, the communities around us and listening to those communities, sitting and listening.
0: I'm looking forward to the next 400 years also, uh, of which I mean, we'll be around for just a little bit of, but I want to talk about, we're, we're almost out of time. I want to talk about Phantasma and it's, a. Uh, it looks, it looks amazing. Tell the audiences a little bit about, about what it is.
1: Phantasma is an opera that was commissioned by the Canadian Opera Company in 2018. Um, to be a piece that could be performed by their ensemble studio, which is the tra- artist training program um, at the Canadian Opera Company, and so they they commissioned this work, and it came with a number of parameters. And parameters, I think, are one of the most fantastic things. It was to be an opera for families, or that could that families could could enjoy and sit through, and it had to be a you know forty five minute length and have incorporate the voices and resources of the ensemble studio. And the first thing I asked for was to collaborate with a good friend, Colleen Murphy, who is an exceptional playwright and an a, an incredible librettist, and just an all around h- amazing human being. And this led to several years of creation of this piece that got delayed, of course, because of, of pandemic setbacks. Um, it was presented in uh, in March of 2022. And uh, the piece really centers around a carnival, um, which tells the story of these two um, these two girls who come to the carnival. They're fifteen years old. Uh, one has a phone, carries a phone with her, and and has you know we we get the sense more access and privilege in terms of financial resource. The other comes with her mother and and six month old baby brother, and. Um, and they, in that time at the carnival, they sort of see the world of this place, which is wacky and zany and, and interesting, and yet they enter uh, a haunted manor in the carnival, and in the haunted manor, they meet a boy, and the boy is a dead boy, and in our first production, he was shrouded in this white ghost cloak, and they learn his story. His story is that he was murdered, Um, when he was 10 years old in a school. And and we get the sense this happened probably 50 or more years ago. And he says to them, I want to find my grave so that I can sleep. But we learn that his grave likely doesn't exist. In fact, he talks about, you know, a, a field where he was maybe the last place he remembers. And these young women say, we are going to help you we are going to help you find your grave so that you can sleep. And they make this beautiful promise to them, to him. And they, they exit this sort of inner sanctum of the, the haunted manor. And they go back out into the wider world of the carnival where the adults are. And they explain this young boy's story to them. And not one adult believes them. And they try and try and push and try to convince the adults that, that they need to help this boy. They, they made a promise to him. And we end with the family leaving and the carnival shutting down. In fact, it's leaving town tomorrow. And the final scene of the opera is this boy on stage now holding a suitcase with his best friend, which is a plastic skeleton named Lily, and he's waiting for them. And he says, are you coming? Are you coming soon? And we hold on that image, and then we fade to black. And the reality is the girls will never come back. They they tried but cannot keep their promise, and he will vanish with the carnival, which leaves in the morning. And, you know, to me, this may seem like a really strange story to tell for families and to have chosen and yet it it is a story, I think one of the, the really critical pieces that both Colleen and I had wa- was to say, children have an incredible capacity to process a wide range of human emotions. And we need to make an offer to them without being sort of, without, without telling them what they need to feel and believe and let them have an emotional experience and then to take what they will away from that and, and continue in their lives. And I think that's something that we were able to achieve. It's certainly not an easy piece to watch, and yet it has lots of humor in it as well. But, um, but it, it leaves you sort of with a punch to the gut. And uh, I think that's something that, that opera can do so incredibly well, to leave people with this emotional offer that they can then take it and fold into their lives.
0: Ian Cuson, thank you so much for this gift of a conversation i so appreciate all of the things you've talked about with regards to intersectionality and the obligation that we have to really tell stories in a more wide and curious and playful way and as we wrap our episode up today here's some beautiful music from ian cuisson's phantasma recorded at the banff center for arts and creativity
2: a minute with my mom.
0: Beautiful music from Ian Cuson's Opera for Young Audiences, Phantasma. Watch the space for more details on when you can discover more about that exciting and intoxicating show. And watch the space for more programming as we get into next season. Tickets are now on sale. Subscriptions are on sale at vancouveropera.ca. I'll be back next with an interview once again with music director emeritus jonathan darlington to discuss his hallowed return to conduct a free concert at deer lake park in burnaby on july 17th it's a concert called opera goes to the movies it's the first time we've ever done a big outdoor festival performance like this so that's very exciting jonathan will be here to take apart the program and get you all ready for that so that's coming out in the next few weeks My name is Ashley Daniel Foote. You've been listening to Inside Vancouver Opera to be continued.